Hi, my name's Paul Malin. Welcome to the Life and Death of a Tax Investigation. Throughout this series of podcasts, we will consider the beginning, the middle and the end of a tax investigation. During the Life and Death of a Tax Investigation, we'll cover topics such as answering the initial challenge by HMRC, how to work out penalties, and then how to make a disclosure to HMRC. You can contact me for further clarification either on 07979 313 010 or my email address paul at pmc.tax. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the bonus podcast. My name is Paul Malin of Paul Malin Consultancy. Life and death of the tax investigation, there's always a number of frequently asked questions. And in my career, the number one of that is always be, will I go to jail? That's the primary concern of the taxpayer. Well, the answer is no. I can't say definitely no, but the odds are you will not go to jail. Prosecutions are expensive for both parties, both HMRC and the taxpayer, but they're also fraught with danger because they may not be able to convince the jury that the taxpayer has committed typically being a common cheat, that's the charge, and therefore the prosecution fails. So unless HMRC want to go ahead for a prosecution, I would suggest that over 90% of all investigations are on a civil and not a criminal basis. So that's why I say, no, you won't go to jail. Next question is, will anybody else be drawn into the investigation? Again, that depends on the facts at the end of the day. But for most people, HMRC will identify at the very beginning who it is they want to challenge. So if it's a business, they'll go for all owners of that business. So all the partners or the directors, shareholders, whatever. So in other words, the starting point will always be as wide as HMRC feel fit. But if during the investigation, other matters come to light, that is, in their words, a spin-off, such that there is a, a common supplier, common customer that's involved, then there's no doubt that HMRC will widen the investigation as a separate investigation into that other taxpayer or taxpayers. So yes, it can happen. It's actually quite rare. Next main question I get asked is, why is HMRC picking on me? Well, it's not really the way that HMRC look at it. HMRC are there because they are required to do the care and management of the tax system to make sure that the legislation is fair, to make sure that everybody pays, pays their fair share of tax. So in terms of why me, the taxpayer has been identified because there is a risk of a loss of tax. So it may be, for example, when in the economy, cash was king. If you had a cash-based business, there is a greater risk that that cash may not be declared and taxed correctly. But the economy has changed these days. And with the COVID pandemic, cash is less of a commodity. But now we have other things such as crypto assets that have come into the arena. So anybody using cryptocurrency may also 
flag themselves up as an entity that may have a greater risk of a loss of tax. Next on the list of frequently asked questions is, well, how long will this investigation take? Unfortunately, the answer to that is how long is a piece of string? Because until the areas have been covered that have identified in previous podcasts, such as what years, which taxpayers, what areas have been identified, nobody can really say how long. However, there can be circumstances that HMRC needs to be made aware of if there's a deadline that's got to be achieved. For example, I've had experience of a company that was trying to be floated on the stock exchange. And that's a long process, a very costly process. And just before the flotation happened, HMRC challenged them. As it turned out, it was a, a right for HMRC to challenge it because there's a substantial amount of tax underpaid. But we were able to keep to a, a specific deadline such that the flotation still happened. Interestingly, as, as a byproduct of keeping to that deadline on the flotation, the issue price of the shares in that company actually went up. The reason being that everything had been looked at and therefore there's no requirement to have any warranty and indemnity clause in the sale agreement because all the skeletons that were in the cupboard have now been dealt with. So therefore the buyers of the new company were actually holding shares in a totally clean company. Therefore the value of each share went up. Quite bizarre, but a true story. Next on the list of frequently asked questions is how much will it all cost? In my view, there are three types of cost involved here. The main one being what's the cost in terms of tax, interest and penalties that HMRC may want at the end of it. The second element is the cost of people like me, my services, if a lawyer is needed or an estate agent in support, etc. The cost of those services. And the third element is what I call the emotional cost. Now you can't attach the monetary value to that, but what damage is it going to do on home life? Does it mean that spouses fall out? Does it mean that marriage may fail, that businesses may fail, families may break up? It's the emotional cost, and sometimes that's even more than the financial cost. Naming and shaming. This can be a cost, as I've discussed in a previous podcast. Why do people name and shame taxpayers? because they're trying to deter other taxpayers from doing the same thing. As for prosecutions, there are a lot of prosecutions that get reported in the national press and local press. And so the prosecution is there as an example by HMRC that don't try and cheat the tax system because we'll find you out and we'll get the ultimate sanction of prosecuting you. The same is true to a lesser extent of naming and shaming because you're then made an example in the local community should your name and address etc be included on HMRC's website and customers may be put off by that but it's HMRC's website that you're named and shamed not any other website. Sometimes taxpayers don't learn their lesson or they do something slightly different and they get caught a second even third time. Well, you can imagine that if somebody commits an, an offence 
and it's the same offence the second time, then they are dealt with more harshly than they were first time, because the taxpayer may not have learnt their lesson. But it can be that HMRC challenges the taxpayer on one area, and they're quite specific on the area that they're challenging, such as, for example, overseas trading. And there's nothing else that HMRC are looking for, and therefore that investigation is concluded and the settlement is reached, tax paid. But then could be two or three years later that there's another issue concerning stock, stock in the UK. The two as entities are quite unconnected, but both have gone wrong in terms of how their tax compliance has failed and in different tax years and all the rest of it. So yes, you can have two tax investigations, but you can imagine that the level of penalties for the second time or third time or whatever will be far harsher, far higher than on the first occasion. The exception to that will be where somebody has been accused of tax fraud, simply because at the opening meeting, the taxpayers put on notice that any tax fraud, any and every tax fraud, has to be disclosed, has to be corrected. So in that example of a matter being overseas and another matter being in stock, if they are both in the past, then at the very beginning, the taxpayer is required to make a disclosure of both irregularities if they are indeed tax irregularities. Another question I'm often asked about is, what if I'm made bankrupt? What happens then? Well, HMRC will simply be named as one of the main creditors and they will have to be uh, satisfied with the dividend of X pence in the pound to satisfy their debt. What the solvency practitioner it has to be aware of though is whatever's happened in the previous six years prior to bankruptcy because there can be a temptation for certain people to divest themselves of certain assets before they are made bankrupt. So, for example, they transfer the uh, house into uh, the other spouse's name. If that's within the previous six years of the bankruptcy order, that can be investigated and actually reversed. It can be easily equally the case that the economy contracts or the fortunes of the taxpayer contract after the investigation has been concluded, the settlement agreement has been signed and sealed, but suddenly the taxpayer realises they can't keep up the payments. Well, don't wait until the payments are missed. As soon as you foresee that you can't keep up with the pay payments, that is when you need to go back to HMRC and just refresh, renegotiate, whatever you like to call it, what the original terms are and extend it by two years, four years, reduce it by a certain amount per month, whatever the requirement is. Because it's a contract, it needs to be evidenced in a separate contract that the new terms are, are X pounds per month over whatever period of time. Closure. Investigations can go on for many months, many years. Taxpayers become, if you like, exhausted and they just want the end of it. Now, one of the problems with a very long tax investigation 
is that not only do people get exhausted, but they can lose sight of what they're trying to achieve. This is particularly the case with HMRC because they might be wanting to identify who all the taxpayers are, they might want to see all the documentation, etc., etc., but they can't. And what tends to happen then is that the investigation goes quiet. So rather than having got into a system of, let's say, exchanging letters, emails every 30 days, it then stretches to 60 days, 90 days. Nothing has been heard for six months, a year. Well, just because there's nothing happening doesn't mean to say that the investigation has been concluded. That has to be evidenced by a letter or a contract settlement, but something in writing. One of the mechanisms open to a taxpayer is what's called a closure notice. So I would suggest that a specialist like myself is consulted to see if there's any opportunity of going back to HMRC after the period of six months, 12 months, whatever the period has been, and requesting a closure notice. That then puts the onus back onto HMRC to demonstrate to the supervisors with, if you like, within HMRC that the investigation is valid and it has gone quiet, but other things are happening in the background which the taxpayer may not be aware of. But the inquiry should not be concluded because we're waiting on documentation, HMRC may say. But on the other hand, if HMRC can't demonstrate that there is a valid reason to continue with the inquiry, then a closure notice is issued. Again, it looks like a letter, it's headed closure notice, it's evidence that the matter has now been concluded. Whether there's been any tax to pay will be stated separately in that letter, but you have then got finality. If anybody's got any questions, please give me a call on 07979 or email me at paul at Thank you. If you've got any questions you want to ask me, my telephone number is 07979 or contact me by email at paul at pmc.tax. Thank you for listening.